and Coca-Cola and Pepsi have also announced they will follow suit. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. And good morning. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. This is Money Talk, and I am Andrew Work in for Peter Lewis. Don't worry, Money Talkers. The COVID did not get him, and he'll be back Monday ready for action. First up, American President Biden tells his people to buckle up for higher gas prices as he announces a total ban on oil and gas imports from Russia. The UK will phase out imports by the end of 2022. The gas is still flowing at high levels through pipes from Russia to Europe, through Poland, Slovakia, and even the Ukraine. Europeans are aiming to adopt a more phased out approach, reducing their imports over time. Shell is the first male of a major oil company to announce it is completely pulling out of business there from gas at the pump and airline fuels to lubricants. Consumer goods giant Unilever is out. Pepsi is out. McDonald's is closing 850 stores in Russia, but still paying staff following Starbucks and Coca-Cola in shutting down in Russia. In not war news, Alphabet, a.k.a. Google, announced its second biggest acquisition in its history as it will be putting down 5.4 billion U.S. dollars for cybersecurity firm Mandiant. The Mandiant deal was announced, unironically, on International Women's Day. This will supposedly help Alphabet compete with Amazon and Microsoft's big cloud computing businesses. Global music and podcast streaming giant Spotify caused a minor global panic when it went out of commission for a couple of hours in the night. So if you're having trouble logging in today, it's not you. It really is them. And in local business, hairdressers are back in business from Thursday and pork is back on the menu as local laboratories reopen with 3,000 lucky customers being imported from the mainland to to sample newly sharpened knives. And on today's uh, Money Talk, we're going to be joined by Sunil Keshap, director at FinMet. Hao Hong, Managing Director and Head of Research at Bullcom International, and RTHK's own International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. And we're going to have them on for the whole half hour. You can get your digs in via our Facebook page at Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And you definitely should follow our Twitter account. It's more fun than hanging out with your in-laws. The account is at Money Talk Radio 3. So fasten your seatbelts and put your trays in the upright position because we are taking off on Money Talk. Okay, Money Talkers, here are your markets for March 9th. Looking at U.S. stocks, Tuesday was another grim outing with the Dow Jones closing half a percentage point lower. The S&P dropped 0.7% and the NASDAQ fell 0.3%. The S&P 500 index saw renewable energy companies bucking the trend with companies like Enphase Energy and SunPower jumping 10.8% and 18.7% very, very respectively. Strangely, airlines popped up as well, but may be hit later by rising fuel costs. The TMX's Toronto Composite Index dropped as the once former natural resources dominated bourse saw tech stocks and financials determine its fate. In Europe, the major exchanges finished flat, but that doesn't tell the whole story, as banks on the stock 600 were up 2%, while the media sector dropped 3.6%. The UK FTSE was up over 0.7%, as was the Italian FTSE MIB, while the CAC and DAX both dropped yesterday. In Asia, the Nikkei was down a whopping 1.7% to finish at a 25-month low as traders assess the impact of higher energy prices on Japan's economy. The Hang Seng Index plummeted 1.4%, while the Shanghai Composite Index fell 2.5%, and Shenzhen's bourse lost almost 2%. We'll get into that more later in the show. But commodities are the big like Russian bear story. 
Brent crude oil hit a high of over $133 a barrel before coming back down to under $130 a barrel. Natural gas is down 5% in the 24-hour cycle, but could go in any direction in days to come. Metals are all up, up, up. Gold is up 3%. Silver up 4.7%. Platinum is up almost 5%. And palladium is up almost 8.5%. Russia is the world's top producer of palladium and vital to the auto industry. Nickel hit a record high of $100,000 a ton, leaving short sellers in a state of panic. The London Metal Exchange suspended trading of the metal with little chance of trading resuming before March 11th. Looking at bonds, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yields jumped nine basis points on fears of an increase in inflation connected to higher gas prices. With currencies, the euro is up in the U.S. dollar, while the pound lost ground to the greenback. The Canadian dollar normally rises with oil prices, but that doesn't seem to be happening in the current environment. A rising loonie would be an inflation-fighting tool for the Bank of Canada, but lacking that pressure valve relief, the Bank of Canada is coming into pressure to raise interest rates. The Chinese yuan is rising against the U.S. dollar, while the Japanese yen declined slightly in overnight trading, as did the Sing dollar, while the Aussie dollar picked up ground against the USD. In crypto, uh, Bitcoin is up to $38,557, while Ethereum climbed 2.5% in 24-hour trading. Cardano and Solana were down, while Terra Luna's stablecoin settlement system picked up almost 10% in the last 24 hours and is among the top 10 traded in the world. Looking around the region, the Kospi is down and the Australian Stock Exchange is up in their opening hours. So people, get ready. This is Money Talk. All right, welcome back to Money Talk. I am Andrew Work, and man, the only thing reassuring me about the markets today is the expertise that we have on this show to show us the light, starting with uh, Sunil Keshap, is the director at FinMet. Good morning, Sunil. Good morning, Andrew. Hello. Uh, we've also got Hao Hong, the managing director and head of research at Bocom International. Good morning. And we've also got uh, Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent uh, from Washington, D.C., and maybe we'll start there, uh, because big news coming out of Washington this morning. Barry? Well, good morning to you, Andrew. Hey. And uh, how is everything with our Canadian friend in Hong Kong? Doing A-OK. I can't complain for the weather. <laughs> the markets ain't great, but the weather here is spectacular, so I'll take it. And what about Washington? What's, ha what's, what's going on? Biden's the big news. Well, gosh, look. I'm old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which was frightening, and you had people talking about uh, air raid shelters and nuclear weapons being exchanged between the Soviet Union and the United States. In one sense, this seems even more serious, mainly because of the danger of unexpected consequences or inadvertent escalation. And all of that is in the air. But you ask about President Biden. He responded, not just a few hours ago, to all the pressure that he's getting from his Democratic members of Congress, from the public, and certainly from the Republicans, to do something more. I think the public has been shocked to learn that uh, the Americans were actually importing oil from Russia. And of course, they're mostly shocked by the horrific pictures they see from Ukraine. And uh, you see Ukrainian flags being hung 
lots of places. So he was responding to that, and we can talk more about the implications of it, which uh, probably aren't going to be significant, but he's getting a bit of positive support from the public because he is consulting with our allies and he is taking firm action. Right, and I mean, the, the big firm action of the day was a complete ban on Russian oil and gas. How much capacity does the U.S. have to step up their own production um, or import from partners like Canada, Venezuela, maybe maybe Mexico, uh, to fill the gap? Well, that's the big question, and that has to do with why we were importing any Russian oil in the first place. President Biden came into office with a pledge to cut back on oil production for environmental reasons and also for clean air and for other environmental considerations. So the United States is not boosting production, and of course oil is, excuse the analogy, a bit like an oil tanker. It's big. It takes a long time to shift. So you can't simply turn a light switch and say, all right, you cut your oil production in the United States, now boost it again. It takes weeks and months. So yes, that's part of the reason that the Americans, previously an oil exporter, were now importing oil from, from Russia. But you're right, Andrew. Most of the oil that comes into the States, about 51% of all the oil that is imported comes from Canada, and then after that it comes from the other countries you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, I mean, I think in terms of impact, it's 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 more symbolic. I mean, the fact is that Russian oil, a um, couple of data points. Firstly, Russian oil accounted for less than three percent of the total imports, mm -hmm. and the imports themselves were less than half of the total requirement. So, in terms of the net impact, um, you know, over a year it's going to be much lesser. The second thing is. Uh, even even in the last 10 days, there was no Russian oil that was imported. So in terms of the immediacy of the problem, it's it's not that great. So I think that's why the, the, the government had mm, the courage, quote-unquote, quote uh, to, to go ahead with this and, and know that the, it, you know, there is more symbolic in terms of politically it, it gives them... Uh, it gives Joe Biden uh, something to say that I've done something dramatic, uh, but the actual impact is going to be minimal. Yeah, and I mean, Joe Biden really wanted to say he'd done something. He actually got the Democrats to stop the introduction of their bill so it would look like he was out in front, not being led by his own party. I mean, uh, which is, you know, this, this is where I, I question how much the Americans can keep this up because they're, they're hitting record high prices for gas at the pump. Uh, are they going to, you know, when they actually start filling their gas tanks, are they going to change their opinion about whether or not they want to support these yeah, I sanctions. think there's a realization, Andrew, that you know we are in a totally new kind of a, um, um, economic regime, right? Mm -hmm. So I think slowly the people are realizing that <clears throat> some of the equations of the past, some of the inflation numbers, some of the some of the certainties of the past are now gone, and we're going to live with more uncertainty, more volatility. Uh, so I think what you're seeing right now is the market adjusting to that. That's why you see so many swings. Uh, especially in commodity prices, uh, because the market is just trying to find another level um, and, 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 and adjust to the new reality that you're going to have so much more uncertainty in terms of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. a, a big importer of oil and gas and those other inputs, uh, of course, is China. Uh, Hao Hong is on the line with us today. Yes. Good morning. What, what is your take on, on uh, you know, how this is going to hit the Chinese economy and Chinese stocks? 
I think 80%. I think uh, um, China takes about 18% uh, of Russian's uh, oil and gas uh, exports before this crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. So I can imagine that um, the import from Russia uh, will likely increase from here, uh, you know, because um, a couple of years ago, uh, China signed a long-term supply contract uh, with Russia, uh, dominated in RMB. Uh, so I think now Russia is in a, a difficult negotiation position for uh, the uh, exporting price for its energy products. Uh, so I think China is in a sort of in, in, a, in, a, in a good, strong position to negotiate for a better price uh, for importing uh, Russian energy products. So I wouldn't be surprised to see um, um, increasing imports uh, from Russia uh, in terms of energy. And therefore, you know, China being a, a huge energy consumption country, uh, you know, could actually benefit, you know, should uh, the oil price uh, being substantially higher. Yeah. Uh, than what it is now. So, I mean, but, you know, China, just before the Olympics, had that big meeting, said we're great friends with Russia. Do they do they support Russia by buying oil the oil and gas they can't sell anywhere else? Or do they go in and say, oh, here's our chance to get some cheap goods? I mean, or do they drive a hard bargain? Which which side of this yeah. do they take? Well, it's very difficult to say what's happening behind the curtain, all right? So I think the, the, the time when the war broke out, you know, is somehow coincidental. Uh, coincides with the conclusion of the Winter Olympics. Uh, but then at the same time, you're seeing um, the European countries being, uh, you know, very heavily dependent on Russian uh, energy exports, still buying Russian oil as well. So I think China is not alone. I think that the European countries are in a much worse situation in the sense that if you look at the uh, Dutch natural gas futures, right, it's up more than 11 times, uh, you know, in, in, in the matter of less than one year. So I think, you know, the, I think Europe is in a worse situation right now. Mm. And, and I mean, there's this dynamic of, of uh, you know, how much support can China provide without getting on the, in the bad books of everybody else, whether it's through uh, through the financial system, through buying natural, you know, natural resource products. Um, uh, you know, what's your take on that? How far can China go? Mm. Well, I think... Um, I'll come in on that, if I may. Sure, uh, sure. Mix it up, boys. Let's have it. <laughs> and I really uh, agree with what uh, both Sunil and Howe have said. Mm. But if you look at the Russia-China strategic partnership, February 4th, 2022, uh, it's very significant. And what the war in Ukraine is doing, it's having the effect, with all the sanctions, of really pushing Russia into the hands of China. Uh, after all, if you had $600 billion of foreign exchange reserves, which you can't touch, except for that percentage, which is in renminbi and presumably held in, in Beijing, and if you have oil exports cut to some countries, not to Europe, that, that's not happening. The, the Russians are going to sell more oil, and that was always the plan, as, as Howe said, to sell more oil to China. Mm -hmm. And then when you take the dollar being essentially weaponized, all of this is not ignored in Beijing. If a country, and I'm, I'm in no way defending what the Russians have done in Ukraine, but look at the effect of sanctions. Typically, historically, sanctions short term 
cause the people to rally to the country that has been sanctioned. Mm -hmm. So that could happen in Russia. But if you have the sanctions that are now imposed and you can't touch your money, what does that mean about the international order? Can a group of nations simply say, we don't like you, therefore take this. If McDonald's closes 900 restaurants, yes, that sends a pretty strong message to every Russian consumer. But what are the long-term implications of that? And I pose that simply as a question because these are very delicate times we're living through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, Barry, that's very important, and, and especially in the China context. I think, <clears throat> like I mentioned, we are seeing a, a big change now. We're seeing politics and economics clash, right? We saw a weird situation for the last 40 years where I economics was it was separated from politics, right? So you could have a situation where governments were saying th uh, some things politically, but the companies uh, in those countries were doing something totally different economically. And now you're seeing that confluence of politics and economics coming together. And I think from a Chinese point of view, for them, it's going to be very... Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they react, because I don't think they were prepared for this situation where you're going to have such a wholesale change in in your economic uh, stature, in your economic platform, and how to now align it with your political platform. They have been making adjustments. You've seen the changes, for example, with Australia in terms of trade relations, uh, adjusting to the politics. But now suddenly it's a much bigger picture. And it's not easy for an economy of that stage, especially going through the issues that they are right now, to suddenly now shift gears and change their supplier demand mechanisms. And so that's why I think Andrew was talking about is that, you know, how are they going to maneuver themselves uh, away from the reliance on the West mm -hmm. towards uh, their own block, creating their own block where they can be self-sufficient? I said, how hung? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, uh, so far, the energy sanction on, on Russia uh, is uni, unilateral uh, by the U.S. And, you know, if you look at the history, right, so um, during the World War II, uh, the U.S. was supplying oil and, and, and energy uh, products to, to Japan, uh, you know, all the way until, I think, until Pearl Harbor. Uh, so it, it, I think in a situation, complex situation uh, such as this, you know, people was still, you know, very fastidious about, you know, who's right and who's wrong, you know, now it's just missing the point. I think the point being, I think just now, um, um, uh, um, uh, someone mentioned that um, uh, right now, you know, it's probably a time for those uh, non-US dollar bloc countries, you know, to rethink uh, the safety uh, of the uh, of their foreign currency reserve and also the, the US dollar holdings, you know, which is entirely true. I think over the past couple of years, uh, China has been somehow, you know, preparing uh, to a certain extent, preparing for this. So China has a CIPS system, you know, which is the RMB uh, payment system uh, that is taking about two to three percent payment uh, in in the global trade. Uh, I think uh, recently, uh, in recent years, you know, the deals with Russia and also the deals with the one one uh, one belt one row uh, countries uh, are signed in uh, RMB in, in Chinese yuan as well. So I think when the crisis broke out this time, uh, Russia, uh, many of the Russian credit card companies are using the Chinese uh, payment system uh, to, uh, 
clear their payments. So I think in a way that there is there's a way out. You know, we, I think you know people haven't been uh, through this process of you know le- living entirely without the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Right? Because after all, eighty percent of the the global goods are still priced in U.S. dollars. Yeah, Hao Hung, hold that thought. We're going to have a message from the government, but I want to come back. I want to talk SFPS. I want to talk SIPS, SWIFT, uh, and much more on the current situation and what's hitting our markets today. And we're back on Money Talk. Uh, we're back here with Sunil Keshab, director at FinMet, Hao Hong from BOCOM, and Barry Wood. And I guess we're not going to have a message from the government. They'll have to uh, try again later. <laughs> They'll get plenty of digs in. It's their station. Um, so I said I wanted to come back and talk about SWIFT, SIPS, uh, SFPS. Uh, I think everybody, you know, most of our listeners know about SWIFT, the global messaging system for clearing uh, financial transactions. Uh, but a lot of people probably don't know about SIPS, which Hao Hong, you dropped into the conversation. It's essentially Chinese SWIFT. I wrote a report on it uh, and how it's going to work with the e-renminbi the Chinese government is rolling out. And, of course, the Russian version of this is F- SFPS. But how much latitude is China going to have to really hook Russia up and even allow it to be like a back door to get deals done from Russia to China and then plug back into SWIFT. I mean, is, is that legitimate, Sunil? I think that's that's the crucial issue that I'm trying to get at. I think, you know, you know, they, they can be a shift gradually towards these systems. But the fact is that the world is watching, right? And so the question that comes up is, what is the expectation of the trade of China's major trade partners, right, when it comes to China's behavior? Right. When will they start drawing lines saying, look, you can do this much, but you can't do more. If you do more, it's going to impact our trade relations. Mm-hmm. I think that's the crucial part where probably uh, you know, China will have to make some very big decisions. And that's my concern is that, yes, you know, they were moving along the path of trying to insulate themselves, but this has come much too early. You mm-hmm. know, if this had happened five years yes. from now, it would have been different. Yeah. Barry? I, was, I, I agree fully with that. I think that, um, if anything, this would hasten the development of an alternative system uh, to, a, to a renminbi or at least some system other than the United States dollar or euro. Uh, the, the swift action of banning Russian banks, making it essentially very difficult for Western countries and other countries in the third world to trade with Russia. Uh, is is a far-reaching and important step that some people thought would not happen. So clearly, I think it would hasten the development of alternatives. Yeah, how hung? Yeah, well, it really depends on you know how you see the trade situation. I mean, eighty percent of the Russian energy exports goes to Europe and, and China, right? So the U.S. is only taking you know less than less than five percent of Russian's energy products. So it's easy for the U.S. to to, to impose sanctions. Uh, on Russia at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, so you know if you if you're living in Europe, you know you're going through um, a, a period where you know natural gas and your heating bill is up ten times. If you if you're living in in China, if you look at uh, what the uh, what the uh, NDRC is doing and then what the uh, commodity exchange is doing right now uh, in China, you know the sanction is wrecking havoc uh, in commodity futures market. Mm-hmm. Right, so you know yesterday we've seen what's happening in LME. And then also in the Shanghai Commodity Exchange, you know, they raised the margin requirement 
and then you know trying to you know keep it uh, keep the ship steady for the domestic market. So you know there's so much volatility that is happening outside of the U.S. Uh, that you know it, it seems to me that as if the U.S. is imposing the sanction at the cost of the other countries. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I promised in my intro that we would address the uh, the drop in the Shenzhen, Shanghai, and Hong Kong uh, indexes. Um, can you guys, uh, how Hong? Can you can you give me some comments on on what's happening in those markets in particular because they were all you know in free fall yesterday. Yeah, I think the Chinese market has been very weak. Um, obviously, traders in the market has been very confused. You know, on on one hand, um, you know, there's so much happening uh, overseas, but then at, at the same time, the twin sessions. Uh, seems to be promising very little of budgetary help uh, to sustain uh, the growth momentum, uh, which has been weak. So I think people were, you know, dis- disappointed by the outcome of the meeting, uh, and you know, uh, uh, confused by not having a clear roadmap for the rest of 20, 20, uh, 2022. Mm. Uh, so I think as a result, you know, there's a huge de-risking uh, trades going on in the marketplace. And I think in the recent days, it will continue. Okay, we got a minute to go. Sunil, uh, do you want to hit on any other markets? I mean, the Nikkei got hammered yesterday. Are there any other markets you yeah, want to I mean, know? I think generally in commodity markets, I'll just caution people, um, you know, the, the volatility you see is because of futures markets. The futures markets tend to work uh, more uh, in terms of cash settlements or even physical delivery further out into the future. They're the easiest way to try to show some price action. And so that's why you see this steep movements up and down because it's mostly speculative rather than core supply and demand. Um, so I think over time the markets will steady as supply and demand catches up to the price action in the futures market. Okay, got it. Barry, uh, you got 30 seconds for a final word from Washington, D.C. Well, I'll simply uh, say uh, I think Lenin's observation about uh, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. We're in the latter, and we don't know where this is going to turn out. Commodity markets and equity markets are always shock absorbers. They're volatile. That's where we're at. All right, and there's Barry Wood came prepared for today's show with a, with a quote from Russia. Fantastic. Big thanks to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent in Washington, D.C., United States of America. Sunil Okesha, who is the director at FinMet, and Hao Hong, the managing director and head of research at Boham in, Bocom International. Thank you, gentlemen. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, that's uh, the end of Money Talk for today, but I'm going to give you a little something extra, a little market update. Uh, the Nikkei is actually up uh, at the moment, so looking good over there after, after a terrible day yesterday. The Kospi, however, is down. The Australian Stock Exchange is showing a little green in my little uh, reader here, which means they're doing well. Uh, and we are going to have coming up next on RTHK3, we're going to back chat with a Hong Kong COVID update. And then more with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. I'm also going to let you know about the weather, which is looking gorgeous. The maximum temperature will be around 22 degrees, fine and dry. The current temperature is 16 degrees Celsius. The humidity is 61%. And that is Money Talk. And I am Andrew Work, and we'll have you back tomorrow. Good luck with those markets today. The time is 8.30, and now the news with Andrew Tarofsky.
University of Hong Kong researchers say their computer modeling indicates that between one and a half to two million people have been infected with COVID-19. Karen Greppen from HKU's School of Public Health said there were promising signs that the fifth wave had peaked and cases should come down to a reasonable level by mid-April. But Professor Greppen told RTHK that not much could be done to drive down the number of deaths. We shouldn't expect to be at the peak yet with regards to hospitalizations, severe cases, and deaths. Those will come in the coming weeks. It is challenging at this point, I think, to be able to dramatically drive the number down. The primary reason, of course, is that you know a large number of the people who are going to get this already have it. So it's very difficult to undo that. I think there is some way of doing a better job at triaging patients coming into the hospital settings to make sure that we're only allocating resources towards the most severe cases. Authorities yesterday announced more than 30,000 infections and 160 deaths, but said the situation appeared to be stabilizing. Health officials say over 14,000 people reported their positive self-test results online in the first few hours after a new platform went live on Monday. But the Center for Health, Health Protection's Albert Al said only just around 2,000 had properly completed verification procedures, such as uploading identification de- details and photos of their test results. He was speaking yesterday. For the remaining cases we have, who have not yet submitted their identity, identity document to us, we have, sent, we have already sent them SMS and we expect that they will or, or they have already submitted uh, their identity, identity doc- documents as well as the photo to us uh, after midnight. So the new, the new cases will, be, will appear in tomorrow's figures. The European Commission says it will aim to reduce EU demand for Russian gas by two-thirds before the end of this year. The European Commissioner for Energy, Kadri Simpson, told a news conference in Brussels that the time had come for the EU to end its dependence on Russian gas. Putin's war on Ukraine has made it absolutely clear that we need to move even faster reshape the European energy system and end our dangerous dependence on Russian fossil fuels as soon as possible. This is uh, not the first time we face this truth in the EU. After 2009, when Russia stopped gas deliveries to Ukraine, we have had worked uh, hard to diversify our supplies. The UK, which is not dependent on Russian gas, says it will phase out Russian oil imports by the end of the year. Russia has suspended the sale of foreign currencies until September the 9th. In a statement, the central bank said banks would not be able to sell foreign currency to citizens although it will still be possible to buy rubles with foreign currency. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. On this morning's programme, we're looking at infection numbers and the new reporting system and we'll be asking the experts whether we're getting a clearer picture of the overall epidemic situation. And after nine on Backchat, we'll be talking about the economic and business impact of the, of the sanctions against Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine. 
Ukraine. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88-266. And now here's our producer, Christy Lai, with a summary of uh, COVID-related news. Thank you, Jim. Health authorities recorded more than 30,000 new coronavirus cases yesterday and 291 COVID-related deaths. The Center of Health Protection said most of its infections had been confirmed by PCR tests, but the total included just over 2,000 notified by people using self-administered rapid, rapid antigen tests at home. It said nearly 15,000 people had notified the authorities that they tested positive, via the 